local news, culture, and NPR. Coming up, a special edition of Witness History from the BBC World Service with African-American history as told by the people who were there. We hear about an image that captured the golden age of jazz. Not only did they show up, but boy did they show up. 58 of the biggest names in jazz. Count Basie, Dizzy Gillespie, the great Mary Lou Williams. We learn about the Black Jesus movement. I think a lot of people were startled by it because every image that Christianity was putting forward in these black churches was of white people. And photographer Ming Smith talks about her time with the Kamunji workshop. It means working together. They were working together with a common purpose to raise the vibration of the image of the black community or black people. I'm Matt Pintus. Stay tuned for Witness History, Black History Month, after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A member of Israel's war cabinet says a military operation in Gaza's southernmost city would take place in about three weeks. That is, unless Hamas releases Israeli hostages. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. One of the leading members of Israel's war cabinet, Minister Benny Gantz, called on Hamas to release Israeli hostages before the beginning of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan in mid-March. If by Ramadan... Hostages are not home. The fighting will continue everywhere to include Rafah area. Israel vows to send troops to Rafah, where the majority of Gaza's population is now sheltering. The U.S. opposes such an operation without a plan to safely evacuate Palestinian civilians. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says a main southern Gaza hospital is no longer functional. Israel's army says its troops took over Nasser Hospital and arrested hundreds of militants inside. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, the UN's top court has opened a hearing into Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. Palestinians say the occupation is illegal. Israel says the case fails to recognize its right and duty to protect its citizens or acknowledge Israeli-Palestinian agreements to negotiate issues such as the status of territories. The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny says she is going to carry on with her husband's work. Yulia Navalnaya says she will press on to help create a free Russia. Alexei Navalny's supporters gathered outside the Russian consulate in New York over the weekend. Katerina Lapuhina says she still shares Navalny's democratic dreams. I'm hoping that people are not going to give up, that they're going to continue fighting for freedom of Russia, for justice, for everything that Navalny has been fighting for. Navalny's mother and lawyers say they are still being refused access to his body. No official cause of death has been released for him. U.S. financial markets are closed today for the President's Day observance. NPR Scott Horsley reports trading in overseas markets has been mixed. Stock markets in China reopened after a break for the Lunar New Year. Shanghai's index was higher overnight, while Hong Kong finished lower. Oil prices fell in international trading, while retail gasoline prices in the U.S. were flat. AAA says the average price for regular gasoline is now just under $3.28 a gallon. That's about $0.08 higher than a week ago, but $0.13 lower than this time last year. Later this week, we'll get an update on the housing market. Forecasters expected to show sales of existing homes ticked up a bit in January. The average interest rate on a 30-year mortgage inched up last week, but is still down about one percentage point from the peak last fall. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. Stormy weather continues moving across much of California. Flood watches and warnings are posted over a wide area. Winter storm warnings are in effect at higher elevations because of snowfall. From member station KQED, Maria Fernanda Bernal reports forecasters can't rule out the possibility of tornadoes. The National Weather Service is forecasting a chance of tornadoes across Sacramento, Stockton, Modesto, Roseville, and Elk Grove. Storm chasers like Michael Steinberg, a student at Chico State, track weather models and are on the lookout for tornadoes. Some have traveled from out of state to see the rare phenomena. 
And once we kind of get a really good sense of, okay, this is where this storm is going to be, that's where we're going to be setting up. And then once we start seeing these storms pop up on satellite and on radar, that's when the chase is on. Steinberg says from 1950 to 2022, the state has seen nearly 70 tornadoes. The National Weather Service has also issued warnings of floods in large portions of California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Los Angeles. For NPR News, I'm Maria Fernanda Bernal in San Francisco. NASCAR says it pushed the season-opening Daytona 500 race off until later today. That's because of bad weather. There have been two days of rain at the Florida track, and the Daytona 500 was originally set for yesterday. WNBA star Brittany Griner saw her number retired last night at Baylor University. She was number 42. Griner is fifth on the NCAA women's all-time scoring list. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. You're listening to Witness History, Black History Month from the BBC World Service. I'm Matt Pintus. Over the next hour, we'll be listening to highlights from the BBC's Witness History programme, looking at some triumphs and challenges in African-American experience. Let's begin in 1958 with a photograph that captured a golden age. Aspiring photographer Art Kane persuaded 58 of the biggest names in jazz to gather for a photo outside a townhouse in Harlem. The resulting photo, officially called Harlem 58, became known as a great day in Harlem, but making it wasn't easy. Jonathan Kane, Art Kane's son, told Vicky Farncombe about the obstacles his late father had to overcome to create the iconic image. He arrived to the street and turned the corner onto the street. And at that point, he was absolutely flabbergasted to see in front of him the biggest names in jazz, his absolute heroes, Count Basie, Lester Young, Coleman Hawkins. And he told me that his knees started shaking and that he almost turned around and left thinking like, geez, I I don't belong here with these people. That's Jonathan Kane talking about the jazz drummer Eddie Locke arriving to take his place in jazz history. In 1958, Jonathan's father, the late Art Kane, was a magazine art director who really wanted to be a photographer. So when he heard that the men's magazine Esquire was planning a big issue devoted to jazz, he had a brainwave. He pitched his idea for a jazz group portrait and they said, wow, what a cool idea. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Kane, we'll book a studio, a big studio. And my father at that point said, no, this photograph has to be on location and it should be on location in Harlem where jazz has its home in New York City. At that point, the, the folks at Esquire started to get nervous. You know, what could go wrong with a live environment uh, location shoot with a group of jazz musicians? The location was number 17, East 126th Street. A beautiful brownstone townhouse with steep rail steps leading up to a grand front door. The shoot was scheduled for 10am, early for jazz musicians who'd been up all night. So they put the word out. And at that point, they really had no idea, like, who or how many musicians would show up. If they got maybe 20, maybe 25 people, but they just didn't know. So on the morning of the shoot, my dad showed up probably around 9 o'clock and just pacing about anxiously, wondering who, if anybody, was going to show up. And then, much to his satisfaction, not only did they show up, but Boy, did they show up. (laughs) 58 of the biggest names in jazz. Count Basie, Charles Mingus, Dizzy Gillespie, the great Mary Lou Williams. Tenor sax player Benny Golson had only recently moved to New York to play in Dizzy Gillespie's band when he heard about the shoot. In 2019, he told CBS how being part of that moment felt. 
And I remember it like it was 24 hours ago. I remember everything about it. Did you know what you were coming to? Not really. All my heroes. And then I said to myself, what am I doing here? You didn't think you were worthy. Oh, <laughs> nobody knew who the heck Benny Colson was. This was unforgettable. Magnum opus. You never had that many musicians of stature together in one place. Art had done it. He'd managed to assemble 58 of the world's biggest jazz legends in one place. But his task was far from over. He still had to actually take the photo, and that was proving a challenge. Firstly, the musicians were having way too much fun. Everybody was just talking and it was just like a big party, like a uh, class reunion of sorts. And everybody was paying attention to anybody besides this, <laughs> you know, this kid with a camera around his neck. So he, at a certain point, realized, okay, everybody's here and I've got to make something happen. So he took a copy of the New York Times and he rolled it into a megaphone shape and started imploring these giants, his heroes, to please start moving up into the stairs and taking their position. You know, he didn't organize it. He let everybody kind of find their own places. In Gene Back's 1994 documentary, A Great Day in Harlem, bass player Milt Hinton looked back on the kerfuffle. The photographer was trying to get us in the pictures that are similar to this up on the, up on the steps. He wanted to get us in this kind of a picture. He would say, gentlemen, will you all please get up here? And he, these guys that hadn't seen one another for ages, they were all shaking hands. Hey, baby, how you doing? How you been? You know, they were just people that you knew and hadn't seen or wanted to see. Finally, the cool cats were herded into position. But Art had another problem to contend with. Kids. Excited by all the drama, the neighbourhood children wanted in on the action too. Taft Jordan Jr., the trumpeter's son, was interviewed for the Great Day in Harlem documentary. Just prior to this picture, I, I got into a scuffle with the boy I'm oh. sitting next to. For me, you know, at that time, I must have been four or five years old, I, I was running around with the neighborhood kids, you know, all the, I was oblivious to all the hoopla that was going on. Now, at that point, one of the people from Esquire started saying, hey, come on, let's get all those kids out of here. And at that point, my father said, absolutely not. The kids stay. The kids represent the future. And so they famously lined up on the curb. But Art's problems weren't over. Just as he was about to press the shutter... One of the outtakes has a horse-drawn cart of old mattresses going by. And uh, nowadays, if you were doing something like that, you would have the street closed off, you'd have police presence and the whole thing. But back then, it was more like the Wild West. Finally, the musicians were in place. The children had settled down. The traffic was quiet. Art picked up his contacts camera and... The end result looks like a giant school photo, with everyone crowding onto the steps of the house and spilling onto the street. Dizzy Gillespie's on the far right, sticking his tongue out. His friend, Roy Eldridge, is looking back and laughing. Theolonius Monk is near the front, looking cool in shades and a hat. And right at the front is Count Basie, sitting on the curb with the neighbourhood kids. Everyone is dressed to the nines. You know, people really represented, uh, everybody looks sharp, and they were all very proud to be there. So one thing I'm a bit confused about, it says 58 musicians turned up, but there's only 57 in the photograph. That's correct, yeah. One of the oldest artists there was the stride pianist Willie the Lion Smith. And Willie had gotten a little tired standing around, and so he went and sat down uh, for a few minutes on one of the stoops next door. And unfortunately for him, that was the frame that became the classic photograph. The black and white photo, without the resting Willie the Lion, was the centre spread in Esquire's Golden Age of Jazz issue in January 1959. It just caused a huge sensation, and, uh, and suddenly Art Kane's career just took off like a rocket ship. Benny Golson bought a copy. 
And I turned to the picture and I said, boy, that's a great picture. Yeah. And like all magazines, you keep it for a while. And I finally threw it in the trash. You did? I threw it in the trash. <laughs> the photograph itself has inspired dozens of copycats. There's a great day in hip hop, a great day in Hollywood. There's a greatest day in Klezmer that's photographed at the Essex Street Synagogue on the Lower East Side. There's great days in Detroit, great days in Chicago. There's a great day in Harlem, as in Harlem, the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, yeah. Art Kane went on to photograph some of the most famous musicians in the world, including Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan and The Who. He died in 1995, aged 69. Vicky Farncombe. Let's go now to Detroit in 1967. On Easter Sunday, the Reverend Albert Klieg renamed his church in Detroit the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Claire Bowes spoke to his daughter, Pearl Klieg, a writer and activist, about her father's belief in black representation and self-determination. The Bible says that God created man in his own image, and if God created man in his own image, and we look at the world, black people and brown people and yellow people and just a few white people, Obviously, then, God is not white. The Reverend Albert Clegg, speaking in 1967 about his soon-to-be-published book called The Black Messiah. My father was driven his whole life by a desire to help black Americans be free. His daughter, Pearl Clegg. And he talked about Jesus not as an individual savior, so much as a revolutionary non-white leader. In the mid-60s, America faced increasing racial tensions. The Civil Rights Act, which outlawed segregation in the South, had only been passed in 1965. And in the northern cities such as Detroit, the home of the Reverend Albert Clegg, racism was rife. Are you able to get a job? No. I try every day. And I don't get no job. Why? Because I'm Ebony. The leading Detroit political militant is the Reverend Albert Clegg. His national reputation increases. In the city of Detroit, we have all the problems that are problems in any northern urban industrial center in America. And those problems were prejudice, poverty, police brutality, poor education, and the growth of ghettos. Uh, black people are separate, not by choice but by white design. We've gone through certain stages of trying to, to lose ourselves in white society, and now, at this time, we've gone back to try to rediscover ourselves, African beginnings, African culture. For the Reverend Albert Clegg, part of that rediscovery was religious. The church, he said, which once offered black people escapism when they were trapped in slavery, should now offer something else. And so essentially, the, the book The Black Messiah is an attempt to build a uh, black theology for the black church. We don't need escape in the black community now. We need guidance and leadership and stability and the institutional resources of the black church for the revolution. Reverend Clegg believed in the power of black representation and self-determination because he'd seen it in action in his own part of Detroit. Everything that I saw was black. The teachers were black. The ministers were black. The doctors were black. The lawyers were black. And that was just in my own family. But the, the idea of a complete black world was not mysterious to me. So that I never had that feeling of black being less than or something that was going to not be as good as another environment. Her father was acutely aware of the negative impact white symbols of power could have on his congregation. And uh, white leadership uh, controlling our organizations and controlling our churches is just no longer acceptable. That was something that my father really focused on to say every Sunday you go and worship somebody that you're going to have to fight like a dog all week long. And that's crazy. Do not believe that this is what God looks like. This is not the God that we are worshiping in this church. So on Easter Sunday, 1967, he rechristened his church in Detroit, the Shrine of the Black Madonna and replaced a stained glass window depicting a white pilgrim with an 18-foot painting of a black Madonna and a black baby Jesus. And it was a 
a moment, I think, when the sanctuary became something that belonged fully to our congregation, which was an all-Black congregation in an all-Black neighborhood. So that our Black Madonna holding her little Black Jesus instantly made an impact on people who may have never seen Mary interpreted in this way before. And Clegg pointed to the many historic depictions of black Madonnas displayed in churches around the world, from South America to Poland. But for a minority of the all-black congregation, the idea of a black Jesus was just too much. Well, I think a lot of people were startled by it. They had never really questioned the idea of Jesus. What did Jesus look like? Because every image that Christianity was putting forward in these black churches was of white people. And there were, of course, some more conservative people um, in the church who resisted that, who did not want um, that kind of radical reinterpretation of the Bible. And I find in going around the country that for black people, the problem of accepting a, a black messiah is, is equally <laughs> as difficult as it is for many white people. Well, my father talked about that very directly all the time. Um, he would talk about what he called the Declaration of Black Inferiority, that we did not feel we were all that we needed to be because we had been taught that. And a big part of what my father was doing was saying, that's a lie. Those people are trying to make you feel less than so that you'll stay in the position that you're in. Get any of those ideas of inferiority, get them out of your head. Do not believe things that you have been taught because we are more than that. You don't need no baggage, you just get on. In June 1963, the Reverend Clegg had helped organize the Detroit Walk to Freedom. It was at the time the biggest civil rights march in the US. Dr. Martin Luther King gave a version of the I Have a Dream speech, which gained worldwide fame just two months later at the March on Washington. But Albert Clegg wasn't happy with the way the Detroit protest developed. It became a very integrated thing and in that they invited the big labor union leader, Walter Ruther, who um, my father had butted heads with many times about the way that the unions discriminated against black workers. They were inviting all of these Detroit white people leaders who wanted to show the black community that they were on the right side. And my dad's position was they aren't on the right side. We're fighting against them. While her father's message was powerful and empowering, it was also dangerous. People sometimes would call our house to threaten my father. And he told me once because I picked up the phone and the person on the other end was a white man who said all kinds of threatening things to me. And I must have looked horrified. So my father said, don't answer the phone um, anymore. I'll take care of it. The men are creeping across the street. They're going to take a car and use it as a shield right now. In the summer of 1967, riots broke out in Detroit. My father was saddened by the fact that we still had so many people who did not have any faith in their ability to change what was happening to us. He would be on television during the riots saying, this is why this riot is taking place. As the night is again broken by gunfire. You know, more people came to the church because they saw my father on TV with an analysis that made sense to them, that didn't blame black people for the riot, that said, yes, we are the ones burning, but we're not the ones who set the fuse. And for his anxious congregation, he found some hope. I've prayed for lo these many years that there would come a day when we wouldn't know our place. And if that's what's indicated throughout the country, that increasingly black people no longer know their place, then I say that's good. That's good. I miss him so much. I wish I could turn to my father and say, tell me what you think about that. The Reverend Albert Clegg died in 2000. He would be distressed, as we all are, by the rise of white nationalism in this country, but would also be one of the people who says, we've lived through this before. We beat them before, we'll beat them again. Writer and activist Pearl Klieg speaking to Claire Bowes in 2021. Thanks to the Chicago History Museum and the WFMT for Studs Terkel Radio Archive of the Reverend Albert Klieg. You're listening to a special edition of Witness History from the BBC World Service, looking back at notable moments in African-American history. I'm Matt Pintus. 
Our next story takes us back to 1995, when Octavia E. Butler became the first author to receive a MacArthur Genius Award for science fiction writing. From a young age, she dreamed of writing books, but faced many challenges, including poverty, sexism and racism in the publishing industry. She died aged 58 in 2006. Alex Collins spoke to her friend and fellow author, Nissy Shawl. Octavia was the first science fiction author to receive that award. So she was representing not just her ethnicity and not just her gender, but the genre. That's author Nissy Shawl. Sounds like it was a moment of triumph on several fronts. But it wasn't easy for Octavia to reach these heights, especially in her early years when there wasn't much money around. Octavia was born in 1947 in Pasadena, Southern California, and spent her early years living on a dusty chicken ranch which had no running water. She was dyslexic, but she loved reading. However, her family couldn't afford to buy her any books. A lot of the books that Octavia was entertained by were basically cast-offs from the families that her grandmother worked for. Her grandmother would bring home things that were basically being either donated to the library or, you know, thrown in the trash, and she would rescue them and bring them home to Octavia. And she loved reading those books. They helped to fire her imagination, as Octavia told Terry Gross on National Public Radio's Fresh Air in 1993. I was an only child, and I was, I guess you could say, very much my own person. I, I kind of constructed my own world as I went along. Octavia's mind became full of alternative worlds, and then she discovered superhero comics. She loved characters that had crazy powers, like being able to fly and travel in time. It inspired Octavia to write her own stories, which she jotted down on scraps of paper and would show to her mother. She also loved watching science fiction movies. We saw this with our own eyes, an object the like of which we had never seen before. A frightening, strange shape descending from outer space with relentless purpose. That's Devil Girl from Mars, which Octavia sat down to watch on the television one evening. And that's when everything changed, because it wasn't brilliant. Nissy Shawl. It's yawningly bad. It's not so bad that it's riveting and exciting. It's just plain boring. She saw and came to two realizations almost simultaneously. First of all, someone got paid for doing this. And second of all, I could get paid for doing something better than this. Amazing to think something so boring and so bad was the spark for Octavia to become one of the most creative writers of her generation. Whilst at college in the 1960s, she entered writing competitions. However, she felt she didn't get much support from those close to her. The family said, oh, you can write in your spare time and mm -hmm. you can, you know, write as a hobby, um, whatever. But um, the idea of writing for a living was completely alien. I accepted the idea that you had to work for a living, but I didn't accept the idea that you had to do something you hated just because it paid. At first, Octavia did have to take on odd jobs for money. She was even a potato chip inspector for a while. She did writing for a few hours every morning at 2am in her tiny Los Angeles apartment. All that hard work began to pay off in the 1970s when her first novels were published. Her books were full of alien creatures and invented planets. But Octavia had bigger interests than even the extraordinary worlds she created. What worried her was much closer to home, the country she was born, raised and lived in. She was concerned about racial injustice and climate change. There weren't many science fiction books that covered these subjects. Many people just didn't get it, so it was no surprise that it took a while for her to get an agent. When she did, she went on a book tour, but it didn't go well. There were no customers lined up to get her signature. She was just sitting there giving people directions to the bathroom, basically. 
she told one woman who was standing nearby, um, you should read this book. It's really good. I wrote it. The woman said, well, what kind of book is it? And Octavia said, it's science fiction. And the woman said, oh, well, I don't read science fiction. These encounters underlined that Octavia faced many challenges. She would place motivational quotes around her apartment to help with her resilience. She would write these notes on notebook pages, on uh, napkins, on scraps of paper, and she would underline and sometimes multiply underline things that were important to her, you know, goals that she knew she needed to reach. I will become a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I will become well-known. And then she would always finish with these exhortations to herself. So be it. See to it. And that's what she did. She kept writing, and in 1979, Kindred was published. It was seen as one of her breakthrough novels. It's the story of Dana, a young black woman. She time travels from the 1970s California to Maryland on the east coast of the United States. She goes back to the 1800s to a pre-Civil War plantation where she visits her ancestors, some who are enslaved. When she was researching the book, Octavia didn't want to just rely on history books. She wanted to feel the places Dana would visit. So she planned a road trip. But as a black woman, she felt vulnerable. The money to buy the bus ticket came from selling a book. That was how she got the money to buy the bus ticket, to stay in the hotel that she stayed in, which was not a good hotel. She was actually there in the location in Maryland, all by herself, a black woman all alone. Kindred, the book that came out of that trip, was described as a rare magical artefact by fellow renowned science fiction writer Harlem Ellison. Another big hit was Parable of the Sower, published in 1993. The work flashes forward to the United States in the mid-2020s. It portrays a hellish world where society has fallen apart and people are pitted against each other. Here's Octavia on National Public Radio reading from it. People are setting fires to get rid of whomever they dislike, from personal enemies to anyone who looks or sounds foreign or racially different. People are setting fires because they're frustrated, angry, hopeless. They have no power to improve their lives, but they have the power to make others even more miserable. And the only way to prove to yourself that you have power is to use it. That's Octavia's vision of America in 2024. There are people who say Octavia tried to tell us they name her as a prophet of the days that we are experiencing now in the U.S. She also saw people operating out of fear, um, making choices out of fear. Octavia Butler died in 2006 at the age of 58. During her life, she'd faced poverty, racism, and sexism, but she persisted through it all and became one of America's most celebrated science fiction writers. Alex Collins speaking to Nissy Shawl about her friend, the science fiction writer, Octavia E. Butler. I'm Matt Pintus. We'll have some more fascinating stories as Witness History Black History Month continues after this short break. Having the conversation with your child about substance use is just as important as buying their school supplies. Vapes, including batteries, cannabis, and alcohol, are prohibited on school grounds. And using over-the-counter and prescribed medications must be arranged with your child's school health office. More information and resources available at cccsos.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. Hi, this is Marco Werman, host of The World. We bring you international perspectives on issues worldwide and here in the U.S. Our reporters in the Americas, Africa, Europe, and Asia get to the heart of the day's news. Afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to this special edition of Witness History from the BBC World Service, reflecting on some remarkable moments of African-American history as told by the people who were there. I'm Matt Pintus. 
Our next story tells how a 14-year-old boy became the youngest person to be executed in the USA during the 20th century. George Stinney Jr. was sent to the electric chair in 1944. He'd been tried for the murder of two young girls, but when the case was reviewed by a court in South Carolina in 2014, his conviction was annulled. Ashley Byrne has been speaking to Matt Burgess, one of the team of lawyers who fought to clear his name, and George Stinney Jr.'s sister, Catherine Robinson. Everywhere I have been, I'll find some old Jim Crow. One day in March 1944, while George was out grazing the cow, he spoke briefly to two young white girls who were cycling past. The next day, they were found dead in a ditch. George was the last person to see them alive and was arrested for their murder. My parents were not home. My little sister was there with him. When she saw them coming, she ran and hid in the chicken coop. He was supposed to be home doing his little chores or whatever, obeying his parents, but they took him anyway. My little sister saw it, and so she ran to see if she could find my mother. I'd gone to the beauty parlor to have my hair dressed. Saw her running down the street. She told us they took George out of the house. We were baffled. We didn't know what to do. A small, scared boy, George was questioned without any access to legal counsel and without being allowed to see his parents. His subsequent confession that he had killed the girls with an iron rod is widely believed to have been forced out of him. No one said anything about him being arrested. We didn't know where he was. All we knew that he was not home and we had to go find out where he was. So what about when it came to the court case? Did you attend the trial? I don't know what kind of court they have. I don't remember anything about having courts and stuff. All of they took him away and I never saw him again. George Stiddy Jr.'s trial lasted only a couple of hours. No evidence was presented against him other than the police officer's testimony that George had confessed. George's lawyer did not cross-examine the officer and a jury of 12 white men found him guilty within 10 minutes. We never saw him again. And they did all that electrocuting and all that stuff for no reason. They didn't have any business doing that, but they did it. And nothing was ever saw because they took him away. We never saw him again. You should get the facts before you move on something like that. They didn't do that. Less than three months after the murder, George was executed by electric chair. He was so small that they had to make him sit on a Bible before they could strap him in. It was a deed done that shouldn't have been done. No one asked anybody what to do. They just did it. it. Broke my parents' heart. The family had to bury their son and then leave town soon after for fear of further trouble. You have to go on with your life and move on. There's nothing we could do about it because the deed was already done. They'd already broken my mother's heart, so we had to do what we could to survive, to keep her going strong. Unfortunately, that's that's the way it went. The family was forced to leave town, and um, you know they didn't have an opportunity to tell their side of the story in, in court until 70 years later. Matt Burgess was a young lawyer when he was introduced to the George Stinney Jr. case by a partner at the law firm he was working at in October 2013. You know, he had, he had a file that contained a few old newspaper articles, and then he had he had a couple of affidavits from George's siblings who are still alive today. It was eye-opening, I think, just to see how bad it was back then. You know, you read about the Jim Crow era and that and that period of time in, in your history book, but, you know, especially as, as a white male, it was kind of a punch in the gut reading a, a, about the case for the first time. My initial reaction was just that the case facts were just obviously unlikely. The, the suggestion that a 14-year-old boy who weighed 95 pounds could somehow murder two white girls in Jim Crow era South Carolina using a railroad spike and then drag their bodies all this distance to hide them the middle of a Friday afternoon without being caught, it, it just struck me as highly unlikely. Matt helped to draft a motion requesting a retrial of George's case on behalf of Catherine and her surviving sister and brother. During a two-day hearing in a South Carolina court in January 2014, a judge examined all the evidence. Here's Miller Sheely, one of the lawyers, explaining the importance of the case. We can't correct what happened 70 years ago. But if there's any way today we can say that George Steeny Jr. was not guilty, that he was treated, he was treated unjustly, we can at least make some step toward dealing with the fact that only South Carolina has the record of executing someone 
14 years old in the 20th century. Later that year, the judge annulled George Stinney's conviction for murder. In her ruling, she commented that George had suffered a great and fundamental injustice. We do think that, that he was railroaded, for lack of a better term. My guess as to why they chose him to serve as their scapegoat is probably a matter of convenience as much as anything else, just because he had indicated that he and his sister had seen the two girls the day before. They didn't have any other suspects, and that probably is, is the reason they chose him. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if, if race was the primary factor in, in their choosing George Stinney as their scapegoat, but it certainly, at very least, was an enabling factor for them to be able to do that at, the, at that time. So it certainly was an injustice, and, and I'd be very surprised if it was the only one. Unfortunately, there was a, a lot of this going on during that time period, and I'm glad that we were able to bring a little bit of, of closure for his family all these years later. Obviously, nothing that, that we did can bring him back. For George's sister, Catherine, although she welcomed the judge's verdict, the pain of that injustice is still with her. Do think about him every time that you walk to the window and look out and look around. It doesn't matter. This picture come to your mind. It was a long time, but I'll never forget you don't take a kid out that young and take him out somewhere and, and kill him. You know, they don't do that. Catherine Robinson speaking to Ashley Byrne. I'm Matt Pintus, and we're marking Black History Month in the US with a special edition of the BBC Witness History programme. We go next to Miami in May of 1980. After four white policemen were acquitted of killing a black man, residents in the city rioted. The unrest lasted for three days. 18 people died, hundreds were injured, and the property damage ran into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Sheila Cook has been hearing from Lonnie Lawrence, who was a childhood friend of the dead man, but also a spokesman for the police force involved. A policeman called what happened uncontrolled violence against whites. But blacks attacked blacks too. This woman's husband had been badly beaten. In all, 113 beating cases were... The riots broke out after four white police officers were acquitted of the manslaughter of a 33-year-old black insurance salesman, Arthur McDuffie. He'd been beaten by the police after jumping a red light on his motorbike. He died in hospital a few days later. The police had driven over his motorbike to make it look like it had an accident. I can remember the sergeant who was assigned to internal affairs at the time, walked over to my office and she said to me, I need to talk to you about something because we are going to have a problem with this case. This is not an accident. And when this comes out, it's going to be bad. Police officer Lonnie Lawrence had recently been put in charge of public affairs for Dade County Public Safety Department, the police force involved. She told me that the last name of the victim was McDuffie. I said, okay. I said, what's his, what's his first name? And uh, she said, Arthur. And I sort of sat back in my chair and I said, Arthur McDuffie? I said, how old was he? Do you know his occupation? And I started asking her questions, and she looked at me, and she said, what's wrong? I said, you know, this guy, I grew up with this guy. I was in the Marine Corps with this guy. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to have a hard time with this one. A very hard time. Arthur McDuffie was fatally beaten here on this spot after a high-speed police chase. He died as a result of blunt head injuries with destruction of his underlying brain. He was beaten to death. They beat my child to death. They beat him to death like a dog. Just like a dog. They beat him to death like a dog. For Lonnie Lawrence, as an African-American policeman, it was a very difficult time. I had thoughts of, um, of quitting. And then I thought, but wait a minute. If I quit, that's one less of us who's there to try to make sure that things change. I can't make a change outside the system, but I could try to effectuate some change along with others within the system. And that drove me to stay. 
The trial of the officers accused of Arthur McDuffie's manslaughter was moved from Miami to Tampa, where it was heard by an all-white, all-male jury. Lonnie Lawrence was out with Director of Police Bobby Jones when the verdict was announced. We were out in Liberty City doing a community against crime thing when I got the word that the jury had um, come back with a decision. And the word that I got was that decision was not guilty on all counts, for all of them, which absolutely blew my mind. And I stepped back over to the director and I told him, I said, we need to leave. And we got in the car and we were driving away and I said, the jury found them all not guilty. I can't begin to tell you what he said to me. <laughs> um, because neither one of us could actually believe that they were all found not guilty on all charges. But then, as we were riding along, I said to him, you need to mobilize the department because there is going to be some problems. He said, really? I said, yeah, there's going to be some problems. There's no doubt in my mind because people are sick and tired of this kind of stuff happening. Several decisions were handed down in Tampa that shocked many of us, tore a lot of us apart inside, and made us extremely emotional. Injustice! By the time Lonnie Lawrence and Bobby Jones had arrived back at police headquarters, people were already taking to the streets. We started making calls, started organizing, and started getting things in place and getting people in place to try to respond. And um, uh, as I'm standing there in my office and looking out, I'm wondering, okay, when is it going to happen? Where is it going to happen? And how bad is it going to happen? And I looked down the street and a crowd was coming down the street toward the, um, the headquarters building. And um, I called him and I said, listen, I need to get off the phone right now. I said, because we got a crowd of folk coming down 14th Street and they are not a happy bunch. I can see it. I said, let me... Uh, go downstairs and try to see what's going on. And sure enough, I went downstairs and they were, they were getting ready to come inside the building. And I said, no, don't do that because it's not going to be a good thing because there are people inside this building who are armed and we don't need any more bloodshed. We really don't. And they back out of the, the, the door and went around uh, the corner in front of the Justice Building, and they held a demonstration in front of the Justice Building. And uh, shortly after that demonstration started, the first vehicle was torched and burned. The large crowd began to move through the city. At a police building, they broke windows and overturned cars, setting them on fire. And from that point on, it was like uh, spontaneous combustion because there were things happening all over the place and people being drug out of cars, cars being rocked and bottled. And, of course, that went on for, uh, what, three days. For a second night in a row, authorities say the predominantly black northwest section of Miami has been turned into a war zone as people burn buildings at will. Fifty-one major fires were reported during the night, along with hundreds of smaller blazes. In an area where things were already not where they should be, some of those things and some of those businesses never came back. And they were businesses that the community depended on. And, and that's the disheartening thing about it, is that it took a community further into despair than it already was. Black community leaders and the police try to improve relationships. It takes a while to build back trust in a community that have heard promises and heard promises but not saw the results of those promises. 
And, and I can tell you that even today, there are still people who have their concerns about the system doing what it should do. Lonnie Lawrence speaking to Sheila Cook. You're listening to Witness History, Black History Month from the BBC World Service with me, Matt Pintus. Our final story takes us to New York, 1979, when the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, purchased photographs from an African-American woman for the first time in its history. Rena Stanton Sharma spoke to Ming Smith. They wanted to purchase two. She told me a price. It was like maybe 300 something like that. I said, no, that doesn't even pay for my supplies. This is the Museum of Modern Art. And she says, are you kidding me? People try to give us artwork and we don't accept them. That's the photographer Ming Smith, a fierce negotiator who drove a hard bargain. Despite this, she would see her work displayed in the prestigious MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. She's famous for capturing her subjects with slow shutter speeds, giving a sense of movement. She plays with light and often uses oil paints to layer colour onto her black and white photos. She was working as a model in New York City and taking photos on the side. It was here that she took a powerful image of fellow model and singer Grace Jones in 1978 after meeting her at an audition. Grace was always Grace Jones. She was always bigger than life. People loved her. I, I remember with our conversation, she was leaving in a week to go to Paris to see if she could make it over there with her singing. She became successful. And then she came back and she called me and told me, I'm doing Studio 54, bring your camera. She put my name on the door and that's when I took that photograph. I mean, it was exciting, it was electric. She had already become a star in Paris. She came back a, a superstar. She pictured Grace Jones dancing in Studio 54 in a sparkly strappy top and huge white rimmed sunglasses, posing with a glittery shawl behind her head. You can see people having a great time in the background. When you walk through those blacked out doors, you are in another world. Andy Warhol, Calvin Klein, Elizabeth Taylor, Mick Jagger. It was hot, sexy. It's like an adult amusement park. Trailers from Studio 54, the documentary. The nightclub was the height of glamour and glitz. Take me out of dining, watch me while I'm smiling. Baby, it's a waste of time. I need a man. Grace recorded and released I Need a Man when she was in France. Ming had moved to New York a few years before Studio 54 opened. She just graduated with a degree in microbiology. And at uni, she took a photography class to continue her passion. She would take her camera with her everywhere and photograph street life in Harlem to challenge the stereotypes of black people. Not long after she arrived in the city, she walked past MoMA. I was like, I'm going to be <laughs> the Museum of Modern Art one day when I pass by. And that day finally arrived in 1979 when the gallery's photography department held an open call for new work. This was the opportunity Ming had been waiting for. As soon as the curators saw her pictures, they knew they couldn't let them go. They had like nine photographs on the table and actually with Susan Gasmeri, uh, she said, well, we love this work. It's like, how did you do this? And they asked me to choose two photographs for them to include in their permanent collection. And I chose one, David Murray in the Wings, which was a man holding a saxophone. And I painted it on the background because I wanted to have a black jazz musician, how prolific is that, in their collection. David Murray was her husband at the time. He's standing side-on, holding a saxophone in front of patterned wallpaper. And the second picture, Christmas Constellation, shows an old lady wrapped in a long winter coat with a fur collar, gloves and a hat in front of a large twinkling Christmas tree. It was a sophisticated image. It was very poetic and it was human. It 
spoke to everyone, you know, aging, life. She looked like she had a lot of memories and it was just a beautiful poetic image, so I chose those two. She took the two photographs. She said you could take the rest of the work, but could we keep these over the weekend and you think about it? So I did. I packed up my things and I was really happy. <laughs> and at the time, I uh, was married to a jazz musician and he said, you know, you better go get that money. So I did. <laughs> they gave me validation because all through those lean years, you know, not having money or just struggling, you know, your parents, you know, you can't do better than this, the criticism. I mean, it was like a pat on the back and you're on the road, you'll make it. And that's exactly what it did for me. The road that got her there had started years earlier. In 1972, Ming became the only female member of the pioneering black photography collective, the Kamongi Workshop. The Ming's working together, these group of photographers, they were uh, working together with a common purpose, and it was to uh, raise the vibration of the image of the black community or black people. That was the first time that I was introduced to photography as an art form. There was a stereotype of black people, and they were always pictured in, you know, poverty. And I wanted to capture the beauty and the love in the community because I felt that much more strongly than I did feel, you know, the violence even though it was there, there was a certain energy and a certain survival, like family and relationships, that there weren't that many images that I ever saw. And that's what I tried to capture in my work. As well as photographing everyday life, Ming was hanging out with other artists, musicians and creatives. And in the spring of 1984, while she was still modelling, Ming was cast to dance in Tina Turner's video for What's Love Got To Do With It. I was pregnant at the time and I had all this leather on and my hair is all a different color. I look different and it was exciting because also Tina, this was her first solo after breaking up with Ike. I always had my camera back then. I took that photo of Tina when she wasn't looking. Ming's photo shows Tina in her leather skirt and denim jacket, black tights and patent stilettos, rocking huge 80s spiky hair and pearl earrings as she's glancing away from the camera with Brooklyn Bridge in the background. It could be a still from the video itself as Tina dances with a love interest at the exact spot where the picture was taken before strutting away from him, belting out, What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do, got to do with it? Fast forward almost 40 years and a collection of her photography from the 70s to the late 90s has just been on display at MoMA. It's like a full circle, but now it's like a spiraling, spiraling. You know, it's interesting. It's still uh, a journey. Ming Smith speaking to Rena Stanton Sharma. That brings us to the end of this special edition of Witness History from the BBC World Service. Listen again to any of these interviews and more stories of key moments in African American and civil rights history on our website. We also have other special series of programmes, including a new one telling fascinating stories of treachery and traitors. That's at bbcworldservice.com slash witnesshistory. I'm Matt Pintus. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, Dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park, 
LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Peter Coleman had a neighbor who kept trying to talk with him about politics. His views were very different from Peter's. And so I basically just sort of pulled away, stopped engaging. If I'd see him, I'd smile, but I'd sort of just move on. I really just tried to unplug from the relationship. How to Bridge Divides, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Today at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill, 